This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. Today we'll be interviewing Kieran Pym, who is the author of The Bumper Book of Dinosaurs, published in the UK, and recently published in the US under the title Dinosaurs the Grand Tour. You may have seen in the news that there's a recent discovery of a quote-unquote dragon dinosaur that was found in China. It was actually discovered several years ago in the Qijiang city in central China. It was discovered by a few people who were digging in a pond and they discovered some large dinosaur vertebrae, um, but they haven't found any leg bones, which are usually what they use to characterize the weight of a dinosaur, so you can't tell too much about them. In the past, people have theorized that the Chinese dragons may stem from all the dinosaur fossils that can be found throughout the country. And I think this is just the latest example, especially in these cases where there aren't any legs found. You could imagine those wispy Chinese dragons that float along being mistaken for dinosaur, or dinosaurs being mistaken for those dragons. So the dinosaur that they found, they've named Chi Long, and it's a mementosaurid which is the type of long-necked dinosaur that has a neck that's roughly half the length of its body. It's the type of sauropod that has some of the longest necks because a lot of the sauropods had necks that were roughly a third the length of its body like Apatosaurus. Right now the skeleton is in the museum in Qijiang, but it's planned to be moved to a different museum once the new museum is finished being built. So now let's go to the interview with Kieran Pym. Hello, I'm, I'm an author and journalist. I live in Norwich, England, which for people listening in, in America is about a couple of hours northeast of London. That's the best way to describe it. And yeah, I'm delighted to have written this book about dinosaurs, um, which has been published. It was published in England and it was published in the USA four months ago by the Experiment Publishing, who are based in New York. And I'm absolutely delighted that they picked it up and that they've published it in the US. It's great. It's really exciting. I'm married to Rowan, and we've got three little girls. And, yeah, I think that, that probably tells you all you need to know about me. <laughs> <laughs> Had you written about dinosaurs at all before the Bumper Book of Dinosaurs? No, I hadn't, actually. No, that, I've been a writer for... 15 years, but mainly that, I mean, that was as 
predominantly as a journalist on the local newspaper here in Norfolk. It's called the Eastern Daily Press. Uh, mainly I was a feature writer and an interviewer. Um, and I had two other things, but most of the things I, I wrote about were kind of uh, the arts, books, music, that kind of thing, celebrity interviews, all of that. I, I would have liked to write about dinosaurs, but my job never really went that way. So, um, no, I can't say that. Uh, but when the opportunity came in my book, I thought, well, yes, this would be fascinating. How did that opportunity so, yeah. come up? What inspired you to write it? Well, I think now I can explain this succinctly. And um, I've been working on, I was working on three books at once, actually, alongside my journalism. One was a book of poetry that I was editing, um, some poetry translation. Another one was a biography um, that I've been working on for the last four years. And uh, in the process of, of working on that, um, my literary agent, who, who took me on to represent that book, heard that a publisher he knew of wanted to publish a book about dinosaurs. And my agent said to me, does this sound interesting? And I thought, yeah, that sounds absolutely great. So I kind of I didn't put the biography on hold. I, I kept that ticking over as well um, in terms of the research. But I mainly focused on researching and writing about dinosaurs. So that's how it came up, really. Um, it was an opportunity I was given. And I thought, well, that sounds fascinating. And it was an opportunity to write a book and have it published. And I thought, yes, please, that sounds great. So how long did it take to research everything and write it all down? Well, 
so I put Pliers Horus in as well. So yes, I, although initially it was frustrating that my book got held over, it turned out to be a good thing because some amazing new animals came up that I got to fit into the book, so it turned out to be a bonus. About how many animals would you say are covered in your book? I would say roughly, hang on, let me think. Roughly 300, or somewhere in more depth than others. And we've got a section, uh, well, both in the UK version and the US version, focusing on all the dinosaurs known from each place. So I've got all the dinosaurs from Britain, but I've only got a line about each. And we've got all the dinosaurs from the US, and again, just a line about each. So if you count those, then yeah, about 300. Um, if you don't, then I'd say about 250. 250 or so proper entries anyway. Um, so how did you go about conducting research for the book? Yeah, it was, I would say that it was mainly from my desk, um, mostly through reading, um, doing anything from reading um, paleontolo paleontological reports online, descriptions of dinosaurs online, reading around online, um, Anything from watching TED talks given by paleontologists like Jack Horner, which were fascinating, um, lots of reading. I made a very enjoyable visit um, to the Natural History Museum in London, which maybe we'll come back to in a minute. And several paleontologists helped me along the way. A guy called Roger Benson at the University of Cambridge, a guy called Mike Taylor, um, who particularly is a, a sauropod expert, uh, and in particular, I should really thank a paleontologist called Darren Nash. He fact-checked my book for me. Because I, I always like to make clear I'm not a paleontologist, I'm not a scientist, I'm an enthusiast who was lucky enough to be given the chance to write this book. But I, I don't profess to be uh, a great you know, expert or authority. What, what I hope I can do is kind of get my head around the material and convey it in a way that I hope is interesting and engaging. But I felt that I, I needed to have a real expert on hand as well. And Darren Nash was great. He, um, he read my manuscript, he, he gave me a few pointers, and between us I think we came up with something that was scientifically sound and also, I hope, kind of generally accessible as well. Oh, I, I think it is. I, I have the book and been using it oh, <laughs> for reference and yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. <laughs> That's nice to hear, thank you. What are some of your like favorite experiences of writing this book? Yeah, I was thinking about that and I, I can't really, um, I can't say there were that many experiences. I mean, I suppose I write a bit, actually this is only in the UK version, but I write a bit about going fossil hunting. Um, on the south coast, uh, it's a stretch of the south coast of England, which is known as the Jurassic Coast because the cliffs expose a lot of Jurassic rocks that are absolutely rich with fossils. I mean, ammonites everywhere, uh, belemnites, but also ichthyosaurs, lots of sea creatures from the Jurassic. Also, there's Regis and Charmouth. These are towns that are quite well known for their fossils. And back in the mid-19th century, there was a fossil hunter called Mary Anning. She was a wonderful, sort of pioneering female scientist at a time when women really were not seen or respected as scientists by the kind of 
very male-dominated scientific world. She was a brilliant female role model uh, who got out there and, and discovered all these amazing, particularly, I think, plesiosaur and ichthyosaur um, fossils around Lyme Regis and Charmouth. And so about 170 or so years on from when she was doing that, I had a little trudge up and down the coast uh, around Charmouth and went looking for fossils. I didn't find any, which is <laughs> sadly, I, I wish I could say that I found a, a plesiosaur as well, but I didn't. Um, but I had a nice time walking along with my wife and one daughter we had at the time, we've got three now, um, but uh, walking along and kind of looking around for ammonites. Didn't find anything, but it was good fun looking. And then the good thing is that these places have got loads of fossil shops. So if you don't find anything, just go to a fossil shop and <laughs> buy one of many ammonites, etc., that they've got there. But it's good fun. But um, in terms of other experiences for the book, I, I would say mainly it was I just didn't enjoy the experience of the research really and turning up amazing stories that I didn't know before. These could be anything from I was amazed to learn about the island's dwarf syndrome, if you like, that um, this idea, it's shown to be the case that if animals are isolated on an island, they tend often to turn into dwarf versions mm. of their kind of mainland cousins, if you like. So we have island's dwarf dinosaurs such as Europasaurus, which was a little sauropod, relatively speaking. I mean, it was still about three metres tall still stood far taller than any human being, but for a sauropod, that's tiny. Mm -hmm. So this was a dwarf sauropod, and they, they evolved to become smaller than most dinosaurs of their type uh, to cope with the diminished resources, diminished food resources available from living on an island. Mm. So it was a survival evolutionary technique. So I found that interesting. But the other extreme, pointed to learn about the mysterious Amphicelius, which was the kind of possibly absolutely immense, by far the biggest sauropod ever known, you know, maybe about 60 metres long. But it's wrapped in mystery because the Edward Griffin century American paleontologist discovered and he drew it and described it, um, and it was only one huge fossil vertebra. Um, and based on what he describes, then Amphicelius was an immense uh, relative of Diplodocus, um, maybe 60 metres long. But the thing is that the fossil bone disappeared. There's nowhere to be seen. Uh, it's thought that probably because it was from very fragile rock. In fact, the species name um, is Fragilimus, uh, Amphicelius Fragilimus, I think. Um, so the rock probably crumbled apart in the, in the laboratory and he probably just dispensed with it. But because it's all we've got to go on are those descriptions and illustrations, there's not quite enough to be sure of, really. And so it's a bit of a tantalising mystery of dinosaur research, and there may have been this immense sauropod. So I was fascinated to learn about that. And um, speaking of Edward Drinker Cope, I loved learning about the bone wars, which I write about in the book, which, in which he and his great rival, Othniel Charles Marsh, waged this ridiculous feud in which they sought to outdo and undermine the other. So you know, they took great pride in kind of 
ridiculing each other's science or one of them dynamiting his own fossil excavation pits after he'd finished work um, so that so that Cope couldn't uh, investigate them afterwards or Cope on his part diverting a trainload of Marsh's fossils to the wrong part of the country. Just back and forth, silly tit for tat stuff like a couple of squabbling kids really but um, these are grown men who probably should have known better. But out of that competition, it, it was fairly unedifying to watch. But out of that competition, um, they really drove each other to find some amazing discoveries, among them Stegosaurus and Diplodocus. I guess some good came out of it, although it was unedifying to watch, really. Going off that, in an article on The Guardian, uh, you mentioned learning about dinosaurs led to learning about other stuff like mythology, uh, astronomy, evolutionary theory, and geology. Could you elaborate? Well, again, this is another of the things that really pleasantly took me by surprise when I really immersed myself in the subject. Um, so mythology, for example, Native American stories about dinosaur bones. The main thing about the mythology is looking at the way that people understood dinosaur fossils before they were known to be from dinosaurs. So, you know, we've only known about dinosaurs really since the early to mid-19th century. But dinosaur fossils have been discovered from time immemorial, and people have seen them and have tried to work out what on earth kind of animal could have left this. And so throughout history, there seems to have been stories of people coming up with their own explanations, and that, that's what mythology is. Uh, so Native Americans, for example, their idea of the Thunderbirds thought may derive from pterosaur skeletons, pterosaur fossils. Chinese dragon mythology, it's surely no coincidence that China has such a rich dragon mythology and also has such a, a rich uh, dinosaur fossil heritage as well. So examples like that, really. I also talk about astronomy. The most obvious example would be you find yourself learning about meteor strikes and the fact that every however many million years, an absolutely immense ball of rock tends to hurl itself into the Earth and and wreak absolute havoc. And so that happened about 65 million years ago. And we know that that was one of, uh, if not the predominant cause of the dinosaurs or the non-avian dinosaurs' extinction. Also find yourself, I found myself learning about little things like um, how the moon was a certain amount bigger in the sky during the dinosaurs' time because it it was that much closer to Earth. Because the moon is, by very small increments, every year moving that little bit further away from Earth. As it spins round and round in its orbit, it's getting further away. So it's nothing that you would notice over the course of the human lifespan, but if you go back a couple of hundred million years, back in the Triassic, it would have been noticeably larger in the sky. So that was another little interesting astronomical fact that I, I was intrigued to learn about. Evolutionary theory, obviously, reading up on dinosaurs, looking at the way that they evolved. Um, take Tyrannosaurs, for example, when they first come on the scene, fairly small, I wouldn't say innocuous, but they were relatively small hunters. And we see how they got bigger and bigger and more and more intelligent, their brains evolved. The musculature around their jaws got more and more sophisticated and stronger and stronger. 
And we can see that through the fossil record, that um, there's a distinct evolutionary process as well there that we can see. And it's repeated through the, through the history of dinosaurs, really. We, we see these evolutions. We, we see dinosaurs getting bigger, um, more sophisticated, and, and then very often specialised specialising. Um, the spinosaurus would be an example of a, a fascinating specialisation that obviously evolved to focus on feeding in water. So, say, um, about 130 million years ago, you had Spinosaurus in uh, North Africa, um, seemingly feeding on huge fish in the lakes and rivers. And alongside it on land, you had Carcharodontosaurus, so a huge, really terrestrial dinosaur, focusing on feeding on, on what was available there. And you had Spinosaurus that evolved with this great crocodilian-like snout uh, that was perfectly uh, uh, suited to feeding on fish. So that kind of evolutionary specialization I found really interesting. And also geology as well. Through the whole business of, of thinking about fossils, fossilization, you, you learn about the process of how sedimentary rock forms, how fossils form, and then how they're dated, and then how rocks rift. Uh, they move upwards. Rocks that have been obscured for millions of years get, get pushed by tectonic forces, pushed into view. Um, you have ancient seabeds that the seas, uh, sea levels fall, the seabeds dry out and get pushed up, and we see what was once a seabed becomes a cliff face, and all these things. Um, so when you, yeah, when you learn about dinosaurs, you're learning about geology, evolution, astronomy, mythology, lots more things besides, really. But I, I, of course, the other big thing with evolutionary theory as well is the amazing thing that we have dinosaurs all around us, and, and we've seen how small Maniraptor and theropods evolved into birds, birds that are still around us today. And when you look at them, when, and when you start thinking of birds as dinosaurs, you look at some of them and you think, yes, that's actually so, you know, once you start thinking about feathered dinosaurs, and you picture, say, Velociraptor, and then you look at, say, a hawk today, you think, yeah, it's, it's so easy to understand, really. You almost think, why does anyone find this theory so hard to accept? But I know I, I look at birds and I think like if they were the size that dinosaurs were, they would be terrifying. So uh, yeah, yeah. If you look at something like Maniraptorans, uh, which came within the Ciliurosaurs, which came within the Theropods, so you look at some of these dinosaurs, feathered dinosaurs, and you look at birds today, and you think the connection is so obvious. Really, it's wonderful, and it's um thrilling thing to, to look at birds today and when you start thinking about them as dinosaurs it makes you look at them afresh and you really see them as the amazing very ancient creatures that they are in some ways when you start thinking of them as the little dinosaurs flying around us today and also when you look back at some of the dinosaurs as well some of the feathered dinosaurs some of them were incredibly fearsome to look at they weren't always as far as we know, that fearsome, but you had ones like Gigantoraptor, for example, an immense feathered dinosaur that, that looks like um, 
I look at the picture of it that we've got in the book and it looks a bit like the famous illustration of the Jabberwocky from, from Lewis Carroll, a picture by uh, John Tenniel. I look at it and the way that Fabio Pastore has illustrated it in my book, it makes me think of that. It looks like this terrible, horrendous creature. And for many years, there were these great circles of enormous kind of cylindrical eggs that were found in the Mongolian desert. Um, paleontologists for a long time thought, what kind of creature could have left something like that? Well, when they found this eight-metre-long, feathered, monstrous-looking creature, Gigantoraptor, which was found in the Mongolian desert, they thought, well, there's your answer. But as it turns out, it was probably omnivorous, um, probably wasn't a, a hugely fearsome predator. It was probably mostly ape plants, maybe also eggs and mollusks. Maybe it wasn't as fearsome as it looked, but still must have been an incredible creature to behold. So you've you've kind of talked about this a little bit, different sauropods and the new dinosaurs you found after 2013, when uh, after the book had been pushed. But what's some of the most like exciting or surprising discovery, r- recent dinosaur discoveries you came across? I think probably like any dinosaur fan, when you take a big, fluffy, nine-metre-long tyrannosaur. I thought that was fantastic. Um, and I, I love the way that the artist, the paleo-artist, who illustrated my book, um, Fabio Pastori, I really like the way that he illustrated it for the book. It's, um, yeah, kind of like looking at a, a fluffy T-Rex, really. Um, yeah, that was, that was a great, surprising discovery. You had mentioned a few paleontologists who helped you with the book, and I saw on, I think, the Amazon listing, it credits Jack Horner, the paleontologist. Did you work with him? I have to say, I didn't work with him directly at all. It was the publisher um, who got him on board. Because for the American version, I was very keen, as was the experiment, the publisher, that we should get rid of the UK-specific versions in the in the British edition, because that wouldn't be of a great deal of interest to a US readership, and that we should replace them with American-specific versions. And the publisher thought, well, let's aim high. Why don't we try Jack Horner? Um, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. And, and they asked him, and they got him, which was absolutely fantastic. I didn't have any dealings with him myself. I, I emailed him once he'd written those sections to say thank you, and it's a, a privilege to have you contributing to my book. Um, but I'm afraid I didn't have any direct dealings with him. Um, but I was absolutely delighted and thrilled to have him on board, and you know, very keen that we should have him mentioned, or, uh, you know, on the cover of the book. I had absolutely no problems about sharing, you know, sharing space um, with him on my book. I thought. Fantastic. I mean, he's one of the most famous paleontologists in the world. So, mm-hmm. Sadly, no, I didn't get to meet him or talk to him. Maybe the next book. <laughs> Maybe. Hope so. Do you have a favourite dinosaur? I think it depends on my mood. Uh, I've, yeah, I've been asked this a few times now, and I probably answer differently each time. But some days it would probably be the speedy, bullhorned predator, Carnotaurus. Um, other days it would be the fluffy Tyrannosaur, Eutyrannus. If I'm feeling nostalgic for my childhood, it would probably be good old Diplodocus, um, who reminds me of childhood visits to the Natural History Museum in London. If you were to ask me where it all started, my interest in dinosaurs 
I could be pretty precise. It would be going to the Natural History Museum in London uh, when I was two, three, four years old. I used to live in London when, when I was that age. And my idea of a perfect day out would be get taken to the Natural History Museum. And they've got this Diplodocus skeleton. And you'd walk in and it just overwhelms you. Uh, and it's huge and it, you cannot help but be overawed. Um, and it just imprints on any child's mind, I think, who walks into the Natural History Museum. And there's other dinosaur skeletons there as well. And then obviously you exit via the gift shop and come away with your dinosaur books and your dinosaur poster and your stegosaurus-shaped uh, eraser. I was going to say, we call them rubbers here, but I know that's got a different meaning in the US. Um, yes. <laughs> sorry. Um, so, yeah, three-year-old kind of leaving the Natural History Museum with, with an eraser. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so it kind of all started very early. So maybe Diplodocus, but I think from writing the book, I would have to say maybe Spinosaurus. Just because it was so big and so strange and so interesting mm-hmm. and so unlike most theropods with its crocodilian kind of scarlet and its immense dorsal sail. So I'll probably go for Spinosaurus. Um, I was really interested, just going off on the tangent, one of the interesting things I I remember turning up when researching my entry in the book on Spinosaurus was some of the theories about what that huge sail could be for on its back. And one idea um, is that maybe it worked in the same way that some herons operate now, they will kind of crowd, put up their wings and create a big shadow over the water where they're standing and very soon fish instinctively swim into the shadowed water to cool down yeah. and then the heron just kind of you know, ducks down and, and gulps up the fish and there's a theory that maybe with Spinosaurus's dorsal sail it created a, a big kind of circular like shadow over the water fish swam into the water, into the shadowy water and possibly there's a, there's a theory as well that it had sensors on parts of its body, parts of its snout that would have been immersed underwater um, in the same way that a crocodile would be semi-immersed. Spinosaurus had these sensors um, that could detect fishes' movements in the water nearby. So the fish swim into the dark, cooler water, Spinosaurus senses them So after um, doing all this research and learning more about Spinosaurus and all the other dinosaurs, I don't know if you if you watched the Jurassic Park movies since doing this book. Do you see anything differently, or you know, dinosaurs in the media in general? <laughs> um, I yeah, I I read pretty much anything that um, comes up. Any any new entries? Uh, sorry, any new discoveries? I read with a combination of emotions. I guess um, on the one hand excitement that you know um thrill at some of these amazing new animals that are being discovered on the other frustration that my book has come out now and i can't put them in <laughs> you think ah with every new one that you know my book feels like it's slightly out of date but it's just inevitable it's um one of the great things about writing a, a book about dinosaurs now is that it's such uh, an interesting fast-paced 
period in dinosaur paleontology. Mm-hmm. And it's a great time for aspect dinosaurs. I mean, they're calling it the golden age of dinosaur paleontology. There's new finds, interesting new finds every month. So it's a really rich time to write about them. But obviously the flip side of that is that your book comes out and they still keep digging up these new dinosaurs. So, you know, maybe a revised edition at some point. I hope so, anyway. That was going to be my next question then. Do you have plans to write Uh, more books about dinosaurs? Not yet, but I hope so. At the moment, I'm working on this biography that I mentioned earlier, which is completely different. It's a million miles away, really. Um, But uh, once I've finished this and it's been published, I would love to do another popular science book at some point. And if we can go back to dinosaurs again, so much the better. I've just had some good news that my dinosaurs book has just been bought by a publisher in the Czech Republic. So it's going to be translated into Czech, which is interesting. And again, we're going to look at focusing it on... There's not a huge array of, of Czech dinosaurs. Um, but again, we, we want to kind of focus it on something that's going to be specifically interesting to a Czech or at least kind of central to Eastern European readership. So maybe we can, yeah, I need to find a way of doing that. So that's the next challenge as regards to asking about dinosaurs. I just want to go real quick back to the Diplodocus at the Natural History Museum. I'm sure you've heard they're planning to remove Dippy in 2017. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's shocking and outrageous and, and terrible. And they've, they're destroying my childhood. <laughs> no, um, I can sort of see their point in that uh, their idea is that you know, dinosaurs are, are great, but they're extinct. And if they put the blue whale skeleton in, it's talking about raising awareness of an animal that is endangered now and that could possibly become extinct. We don't want it to become extinct. So you can see that there's more ecological value, if you like, in in having a striking great blue whale skeleton that's going to make people think more about blue whales. And I can see all of that. But it's there's already a blue whale elsewhere in the museum and, it's just, it's such an icon of London, that, that Diplodocus, and a million, well, millions of children, uh, it's been part of, a formative part of their childhood, going to the Natural History Museum, being overawed by Dippy in the same way that I was, and um, it's caused quite an uproar, really. And um, there's this idea that they're going to take, take Dippy out on tour, and they've said all these kind of very PR-friendly things about we're going to make it more accessible to people that even more people will be able to see it. Well, I think, you know, pretty much everyone goes to London at some point and everyone living in the UK does. And, um, and pretty much everyone who goes to London goes to the Natural History Museum at some point. I give talks about dinosaurs tying in with my book and I've given all over the place from Edinburgh um, at the Edinburgh Book Festival to Bath, which is right over in the west of England, and the Natural History Museum always comes up, and pretty much all the children in the audience who have been there. So I, I'm not entirely convinced by this. We're taking Dippy out from the masses. I think pretty much all the masses have come to Dippy anyway. So yeah, I'm a bit disappointed. I'd be interested to see if it actually comes to pass, or actually if they have a bit of a U-turn. I don't know, but we'll see anyway. 
I know there's a campaign online. There is? Yeah. Yeah, it sparks up to all. It really has. What advice would you give to somebody who's interested in dinosaurs? Well, first of all, I think really the most important thing is uh, they should buy Dinosaurs for Grand Tour, published by the Experiment Publishing. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> they can do that if they want to, but um, you know, it contains all that they will ever need to know about dinosaurs, ever. Um, other than that, go to museums. Uh, so many great-looking uh, museums in America that I would love to go to, from the Museum of the Rockies, um, down to the museum in Chicago that's got... Uh, Sue, the enormous T-Rex in it. Um, so try to work your holidays so that you can go to places where you can either go to a city that's got a great museum or go out into the Badlands and take in some dinosaur track sites maybe so you can actually go walking with dinosaurs yourself. Read all the books you can. Um, watch what you can online. Go to talks. You know, uh, watch uh, TED Talks, so, you know, some great ones on there um, by some great scientists who have really got the knack of communicating. Again, Jack Horner would be a good example. And just yeah, get out there, really, and um, explore the world of dinosaurs however you can. Yeah, and read as many books as you can. Obviously, I would say read my book, but there's so many others as well. Um, yeah, it's a very rich field. Yes, that would be my advice, I think. But also, I suppose... Um, read more widely about about zoology as well and start understanding how dinosaurs fit into the greater picture, the greater picture of evolution and how they evolved into birds today, but also some of the other incredible animals that lived at the same time, from pterosaurs such as Quetzalcoatlus, you know, this incredibly large pterosaur that for many years people thought was probably too big to get off the ground, but the current thinking is that actually it probably was light enough, relatively speaking, to get off the ground and fly. And just read about the natural world. Uh, as I said, reading about dinosaurs takes you off in, in so many different directions anyway. That, um, that would be, a, be my advice. Just immerse yourself and see where it takes you. Thank you. Well, thank you. All right. That was a great interview. I wanted to point out that the you can find the book online, and it's really a great book. I saw some reviews where they were critical of the um, drawings in the book, saying they were grayscale and they weren't exciting enough. But I actually like that a little bit better because whenever you look at a dinosaur book that has these colorful illustrations or takes a lot of liberties with what feathers and things it might have had, you end up with something that's going to be out of date pretty quickly if you just have silhouettes and things that's really what we know about the dinosaur there's no way to know what color it was in a lot of these details but there are some drawings in there that are a little more creative and so if you're into that kind of thing it has some of that too there's only two weeks left to sign up for one of the coolest dinosaur dig programs we've ever heard of it's a two-week, actually 16-day, field program in the American West put together by this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, CNCC. If you've been listening to our show, you know that we're big fans of their dig programs. And it's no surprise that their first program only has three spaces left. That's not many spaces. No, and there's possibly less by the time you're hearing this. If you want to join the July 6th to July 20th dig, then make sure you sign up right now. That's the one with three spaces left. Yes. 
There are a few more spots left on the second dig, too, on July 22nd to August 5th, but it's also a good idea to sign up now before space runs out there. When you get to the field, you'll be taught by expert paleontologists from CNCC and experience a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. So go to cncc.edu slash dinodig, you'll get all the details, and make sure you register online by May 31st, or preferably sooner. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. Sabrina and I love to find the best dinosaur museums around the world, and that requires a fair amount of traveling. A lot of times, those museums are off the beaten path. One of the most challenging museums to get to was the Mifune Dinosaur Museum in Kumamoto, Japan. The only way to get there is either by taxi or bus, and we very nearly got stranded because we couldn't read the bus schedule and there weren't taxis available, so it got a little bit dicey. Yes, we would have been in much better shape if we'd studied just a little more Japanese before that trip. Fortunately, we eventually managed to find our way thanks to some very kind and helpful people who work at the museum. A few more phrases, though, would have made a big difference for us. So we highly recommend preparing for your next big trip by signing up for Rosetta Stone at rosettastone.com dino. For a limited time, just for our listeners, you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership of all 25 of their language courses. The lifetime membership for all 25 courses is just $179, and normally that's $399, so it's a great deal. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. As Kieran said, one of the coolest dinosaurs and most unique dinosaurs that was recently discovered is the Spinosaurus. Our dinosaur of the day is going to be Spinosaurus, specifically Spinosaurus aegypticus, the Egypticus references the fact that it was originally discovered in Egypt, and the name means spiny lizard. Spinosaurus was bigger than a T-Rex, as you saw in Jurassic Park 3, but unlike in the movie, it was ill-suited for fighting on land, so it wouldn't have won against a T-Rex most likely the way it did in the movie. Spinosaurus lived from the late Cretaceous about uh, 110 to 95 million years ago in what is now North Africa. The original was discovered in 1912 and described by German paleontologist Ernst Stromer in 1915, but unfortunately the original remains were destroyed in World War II. Spinosaurus could reach lengths of over 49 feet. Yeah, as mentioned in the bumper book slash grand tour of dinosaurs depending on which country you're in it had a head that more resembled uh i think it's pronounced gharial than a crocodile and i encourage you to look up this animal it's g-h-a-r-i-a-l it's really interesting looking it's got a really long thin snout and when you look at it you see a lot of similarities between it and spinosaurus it's a good example of what they call convergent evolution so Convergent evolution is the theory that even if you have different animals totally isolated, they'll tend to evolve in similar ways if they're in a similar environment. So both of them are semi-aquatic animals that feed on fish, so they end up getting a head that's similar in shape. So Spinosaurus's long head would have been good for catching and eating fish. Uh, there were fish-like bone fossils found where it appears to have been eaten by the Spinosaurus. And there's evidence that suggests it lived on both land and water like a modern crocodile. 
The name Spinosaurus comes from the long spine extensions coming out of its back attached to the vertebrae. The spines grew to over one and a half meters or more than six feet long and judging by the close proximity and the fact that they were connected to the spine, they probably had skin connecting them forming a sail-like structure. It's how it's always been depicted when I've seen it. That's certainly how they depicted it in Jurassic Park 3. But some scientists have suggested that the spines may have been covered in fat and formed a giant hump on its back instead of a sail. At first when I heard this, I thought that it made a lot of sense because a sail attached to vertebrae seems kind of precarious. I was imagining like what if it bumped it or something. Like we all know if you hit your back really hard on something, you can have some serious trouble. But it turns out that there weren't really enough blood vessels in the area to support the hump theory. And the idea that it needed to dissipate a bunch of heat was one of the predominant reasons why they thought it might have had a hump. And that was before we discovered that they probably lived in swamps. Since the vertebrae had ball and socket joints, it was also more flexible than a lot of backs that I'm familiar with. <laughs> and it may have been able to arch its back to a point or spread out its spine to attract a mate. So, like, we don't know what the plates on a stegosaurus did exactly, or the osteoderms on an ankylosaurus. The function of the sails isn't entirely clear, uh, but it may have been used for thermoregulation uh, or display, or as Kieran mentioned in his interview, creating a shadow on the water to find prey. Spinosaurus may have also been the first dinosaur to take to the water, and it lived partially in the water. The large carnivore probably ate fish, ancient crocodiles, and anything else in the water. One was found with a land animal in its gut, but it may have scavenged it or just grabbed it because of the opportunity. But fish can also be pretty big. There was actually one fish, a 25-foot-long sawfish, with a huge mouth and had jagged, spiky teeth called denticles. And they would have been very dangerous to try and eat, but if you were as big as Spinosaurus, they could also have been a big meal. Just like a crocodile, the snout had nostrils near the top of its head, so it could breathe while almost fully submerged. Another way that they could tell that it probably was semi-aquatic is that semi-aquatic animals tend to have higher bone density. This increases their overall density, and it helps them control their buoyancy better. So as Garrett mentioned earlier about why a Spinosaurus probably wouldn't win in a fight against a T-Rex, Spinosaurus didn't have as strong of leg muscles as other theropods, so it wouldn't have been able to run as fast. Its long neck and extra long head made it very front heavy, so it may not have even been able to walk upright on two legs on land, and its short back legs ended in flat feet, which also may have been webbed so it would have slowed it down when it was out of water. Spinosaurus had six or seven thin needle-like teeth on each of the front of the upper jaw and 12 more teeth behind. They also had interlocking teeth at the end of the snout, and while they had powerful jaws, none of the teeth were serrated. Once a Spinosaurus found its prey, its large, backward slanted and conical teeth made perfect rakes for catching fish. They had long, powerful front arms that, with hooked claws that caught anything that their teeth missed. While swimming, the large spine would have been visible to anything out of the water, possibly serving to scare off smaller animals or attract mates like we mentioned before. Aside from the Egyptian Spinosaurus, Spinosaurus moroccanus, 
meaning Moroccan spine lizard, is another specimen, but it might also be the same species. There's a great TED Talk that Jack Horner, the famous paleontologist, did where he talks about several different dinosaur species and how they are actually the same species. So he gives an example with the Pachycephalosaurus and some Ceratopsians. But you could easily see with the Spinosaurus aegypticus and the Spinosaurus moroccanus that they're so similar that it's pretty... I'm pretty skeptical about whether or not they're actually separate species. As Jack Horner mentions in his TED Talk, scientists like to name things whether or not they deserve a new name. So Spinosauridae is a family of theropod dinosaurs, which is a group of mostly carnivorous dinosaurs that have evolved into modern birds. Spinosaurids have been found in Africa, Europe, South America, Asia, and even Australia. According to a study published in the journal Biology Letters in 2011, a neck vertebrae from a dinosaur and a snout resembling a crocodile's was found in Australia, which showed that the Spinosaurus family had a much wider range than scientists previously thought. Spinosaurids were all very large, with crocodile-like skulls and teeth with small or no serrations. Spinosaurus also had thin narrow jaws mainly used to eat fish, and unlike other theropods, they were not built to attack large prey that could fight back. But a study in 2013 did find that Spinosaurus didn't necessarily only eat fish, and instead their diet depended on their size. In addition to fish, Spinosaurids ate small animals. Baryonyx, a type of Spinosaurid, was found with digested bones of a small iguanodon in its stomach, and one Spinosaurid was found with a pterosaur in its stomach contents. So our fun fact is that there are two types of dinosaurs. There are the Saurischians, which are the lizard-hipped, that's what Saurischian means, and then there are the Ornithischian, which means bird-hipped. But the funny thing is that birds actually evolved from the lizard-hipped, the Saurischian dinosaurs. Another thing that I thought was interesting was when you're looking at a Spinosaurus, or at least when I was, and imagining the similarities to a crocodile, you see its relatively long legs and you start to wonder, why wasn't it closer to the ground? If it was a semi-aquatic animal, everything we see nowadays is real low to the ground. You have the hippos, you have you know, amphibians and crocodiles and everything, and it's real close so that it can get in and out of the water quickly and all this kind of stuff. But because of these hips that they had, the hips are more like what humans have than what a lizard has. Our, the legs went straight down from the hips. So it was impossible for them to sprawl out like a crocodile with their legs to their sides. So they always had to be above, you know, significantly above the ground because they had to have room for their legs to walk beneath them. So a Spinosaurus is kind of like a crocodile with people legs or something (laughs) where it can't get too close to the ground and that's it for this episode of i know dino if you want to learn more about dinosaurs or see a map of dinosaur museums in north america visit our website at inodino.com and if you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, please email us at plesiosaur at inodino.com. you can also find us on facebook google plus tumblr and twitter at inodino Sit down.